Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. As far back as I can recall, uh, I was taught in school and in public discourse that what saved the West German economy following World War II was the Marshall Plan. Well, uh, I recently read an article that called that into question and said that's just not the case. So I sent the guy who wrote the article an email and he's here to explain to us why it's not the case. He's a writer and journalist who covers everything from motorcycles and guns to economics and history. Christian Monson, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, I hope. I always forget to ask ahead of time. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, what was the Marshall Plan? Uh, so basically, after World War II, um, the Marshall Plan was, well, the Marshall Plan was billed as a way to rebuild uh, all of Europe uh, after World War II, which of course was just totally devastated. Um, this is how it was presented to the public. And mainly uh, at the beginning, it was for France and the UK. Uh, which were, of course, the main U.S. allies. Um, in reality, the the motivation behind the Marshall Plan was to increase U.S. influence over Europe, especially going into the Cold War and the rivalry with the Soviet Union. Uh, and so it was a big marking point. Up until that point, the U.S. had been almost entirely isolationist. Of course, they'd been involved in World War One, But after World War One, there was and even an increase sort of in non-interventionism. So after World War II, the Marshall Plan was a total uh, 180 for the US as far as foreign policy goes, uh, and just becoming more involved in, well, mainly in Europe, but in global diplomacy and everything. So when did it take hold? Like what, when did they first implement the Marshall Plan? So the Marshall Plan was from 1948, um, but it started with just, well, so the main thing from my point of view is to point out that it started with just the UK and France, some other small European countries as well, uh, but that it, it, they didn't fund West Germany until later, until I believe until 1951, maybe it was after that, yeah. Okay, so when they implement this plan, what were some of the early effects on the West German economy? So I would say from the point of view of just the Marshall Plan had minimal effects on the European economy, including the West German economy. So it's usually estimated that it contributed between 3 to 5% of gross national income during that time, which has been calculated as between 0.3 and 0.5% of GDP. So essentially nothing. Now you also talked about how there were black markets that arose th during this period. Uh, why did that happen and what were the black markets in? So this wasn't necessarily a result of the Marshall Plan, but when the allies, uh, when the allies occupied all of Germany, um, you have to remember that for 15 years or so leading up till the end of World War II, uh, the entire world, well, the U.S. and, and Europe especially, had really had um, 
have really gone really, we'll say socialist as far as their, their economic uh, policies, or at least very Keynesian. So, um, ah, but you repeat were, yourself. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there were a lot of things that they were doing that probably to us today, economically, we associate with uh, radical left-wing socialist, communist, whatever sort of economies, but were then even in the West sort of taken for granted, which were uh, mainly price controls. So um, the allies instituted a lot of price controls and quotas on goods in West Germany, especially things like steel, but everything including food. Um, one thing to point out is that prior to the Marshall Plan, um, the allies, including the Soviet Union, had wanted to prevent Germany from recovering economically, actually. So they wanted Germany, they wanted to return Germany to an agrarian society, was the way that they put it. So to not have any industrial base whatsoever. So when the allies were there, not just for economic reasons, but also for political reasons, they were limiting what Germans could produce as far as steel. I think steel was limited to something like 20% of what it had been, you know, during industrial Germany in the 30s. Um, and all of these things, everything in the Germany economy had a lot of price controls. Um, and of course, that that had started before the, the Allies had occupied because through the 30s, um, the Nazis had instituted a lot of price controls and things like that. Price controls were something that, uh, starting in the Great Depression were just sort of taken for granted. It wasn't like today, you might think of price controls as a very left-wing or at least sort of socialist or economically illiterate policy. But, but back then it was just kind of taken for granted. So even though the US was you know, very anti-communist at the time, they had no problem with instituting price controls. So you called just now an advocacy of price controls, economic illiteracy, and I would certainly agree. Uh, price controls inevitably lead to shortages of, of right. the goods in which on which the price controls are put. So what were the effects? Were there these types of shortages that came about due to these price controls? Absolutely. So in, in West Germany, after well, in all of Germany after the war, people were living on about 1500 calories a day. So uh, Germany was reduced basically to what we think of today as a third world or developing country or really even worse. Um, and what's crazy about that, of course, is that Germany returns to an incredibly wealthy industrial country after just a few years. So that's, of course, why they call it an economic miracle. And it's really important to understand what caused that miracle which was not the Marshall Plan. Yeah. So you said it was a, a, a third world country or developing country. I know it's hard to keep up with the euphemisms that, that they come right. up with for poor. Right. right. So who was Ludwig? I think it's pronounced Ludwig Erhard. Who is that? Yeah. So uh, he actually became the chancellor of West Germany later in the, in the 50s or 60s um, because he did such a good job of revitalizing the economy. He had started out as an economic uh, advisor in Bavaria, um, but then he got promoted. So the, the, US, the US occupation zone um, promoted him as an advisor to help them because the original plan uh, had been to create sort of this international managed zone in the Ruhr, which was the big steel production area. 
there in West Germany. And so originally that wasn't gonna be part of any country. And so they brought him on to help advise them sort of with the economic management of all of this. Uh, and of course he came to tell them that maybe they should just not manage it at all. Um, and so he had a lot of really, he had been a part of a, an economic school its real name is the Freiburg School, but the politically it's called ordo liberalism. So the idea it's very laissez-faire, free market, but well, really very much what Germany is still today, which has it has a considerable social safety net, a lot of social programs, um, but a very independent central bank because of course Germans even before the Nazis, have always been very traumatized by the Weimar hyperinflation. Um, and so they've always wanted a very hard currency. And so they've had a very independent central bank that's maintained very low inflation. Uh, and so that was part of this ordo liberalism school. So you have a fiat currency, but you have an independent central bank that's tasked with keeping inflation low rather than, I suppose, what you would call the traditional laissez-faire philosophy, which would just have an independent currency altogether. Now, I want to take you to, to modern times for just a second, because you mentioned that they are basically laissez-faire, but with a large social uh, safety net. Most people that I converse with, I don't know about most, but a lot of people I converse with seem to think that America is this laissez-faire capitalist country, but European countries and some other countries are more socialist. But when you look it up, and I, I'm going to ask about Germany because I'm not sure, like Sweden, for instance, is a, a has a freer economy than what we have. But people yeah. frequently say Sweden's so the socialist miracle. Singapore, which some people think of as more of a socialist country or a, a government-run economy country, I think is number one on the economic freedom list. Right. So, so yes. where is Germany today? Is Germany a, a more of a socialist country, or uh, juxtaposed to America? Compared to America, you know, off the top of my head, I'm not sure in those indices where Germany comes. I wouldn't be surprised if it's above the U.S. because I think the U.S. usually comes in around like 22. Or yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, that kind of spectrum is always hard to do, of course, because it's not. Right. It's not a binary of like. No, there's so many different country. policies. Yeah. Right. Uh, there are so many things, um, especially in Northern Europe, I would say that they, they do have a freer market in a lot of things than in the US. Uh, okay. They allow for more competition at the end of the day. So once Earhart's policies get implemented and go, go, get going, what is the effect on the economy? So, uh, the German economy after, so the, the main thing to point out that he instituted was a new currency. So the Reichsmark uh, in Germany was basically worthless. People didn't really even use it. Uh, they used things like cigarettes, uh, coffee for currency. Um, what had happened, of course, the Nazis had a big policy of a hard currency because they'd come to power thanks to the Weimar hyperinflation. Uh, so they had a lot of rhetoric about not inflating away the currency and maintaining the currency. But of course, to fund a massive war machine by the end of World War II, they, they couldn't stick to that. So they had inflated the Reichsmark from, I want to say the exchange rate was 
250 Reich marks to a dollar um, at the start and by the end of world or the start of 1944. And by the end of World War II, it was like 10, 10 uh, Reich marks to a dollar. So, but that's still nothing compared to after World War II, the printing presses for the Reichsmark basically fell into the hands of the occupying powers. So the US, the UK, and the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union especially printed a ton of Reichsmarks because they didn't, they didn't try to hide what they were doing. It was a way for them to extract reparations from Germany, basically. So the Soviet Union basically gutted Germany. They took all of the industrial infrastructure, all the talent which invested as well, uh, and just printed a ton of money to suck all of the wealth out of East Germany that they could. Um, and the U.S. printed a bit as well, not quite as much as the Soviet Union. But at the end of the day, this was all circulating, even though there were the different occupation zones, there was still trade happening between all these places. So all the Reichsmarks were circulating through uh, and the inflation was so bad that the currency just became worthless. So what Earhart did was institute the Deutsche Mark, a new, a new current currency, uh, overnight. So it was actually arranged with the US government to do it like in, in secret. So no one was supposed to know about it. And then just one day they said, here's this new currency. Uh, these are the exchange rates with the Reichsmark. You can go to trade them in and done. Uh, and so that the, the German economy recovered in like six months, basically. Really? Yeah. So wow. let me see. The statistics in in the black market disappeared in about six months. Yeah, of course, it wasn't completely recovered in six months, but I think it was like, um, let's see. Now, how long had the German economy been lagging? So that was 1948. It depends on what you want to talk about during, during the war. I mean, the German economy... I'm figuring post-war, post post, you know, the post-war okay, yeah. West so, German economy. So this was 1948 as well. So you've got three years there that it's been just a sort of... So basically you've got three years of a stagnant economy or a, a subpar economy under, you know, with the Marshall Plan implemented. You've got a, a considerable black market. And then within six months of implementing laissez-faire policies, the black market is basically done in the capital. I mean, in the economy is recovered. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. So, so this, like I say, their economy was basically like that of a developed or, or, or whatever you want to call it, low income. Um, yeah. And it recovered that fast. So the lesson always for me is that economic prosperity or, or getting on track economically just isn't really that hard or <laughs> that complicated, I guess I should say. Um and, you know, since I was a kid, we talk about developing nations, they need all this foreign aid, they need all this support, they need all these uh, European, US uh, planning committees to go in there and sort of manage their economy to get it on track when all they need really is a hard currency and for their governments to back off. And it wouldn't take very long at all. Well, you know, if you've got a government bureaucrat, you've got someone who thinks he can plan uh, <laughs> plan, plan prosperity. 
Recently, yeah. we had a, I read an article where David Cameron, um, the former Britain prime minister, talked about negotiating a two-state solution between the, the Palestinians and Israelis so that he, they could establish an irreversible peace. And I'm just thinking only a politician think, <laughs> thinks that you could negotiate an irreversible peace. You right. know? Yeah. So why? It seems obvious what, what you're saying. Uh, economics teaches that, you know, free economy, you get better results. So why does the mythology uh, of the Marshall Plan hold sway? Why is it taking such a stronghold of the popular mind? Yeah, so this is what's really important. Um, like I said, at the time, the Marshall Plan represented a big 180 in U.S. foreign policy uh, during peacetime, especially. World War II was a big deal in general because the U.S. was getting involved in foreign conflict, which had been isolationist basically since its founding. Uh, but the Marshall Plan monetarily and economically represented a complete change. Um, and I think that one, at the time, the US needed to justify this to people. So since then, you know, lucky for them, these things happened in Germany and they were able to say, oh, look, we did that with our, our foreign aid. Um, and then it's, it's just sort of maintained itself as a way to justify foreign aid ever since then and a way to justify American interventionist policy. I mean, even today with Ukraine and stuff like that, they talk about a new Marshall Plan. Uh, and you'll read, I was just reading something the other day that was talking about why we need more aid to Ukraine. And of course, it references the Marshall Plan as one of the greatest foreign policy successes in US history. And of course, for me, having studied this, having written about it, I don't really see the Marshall Plan as a success at all. So, But the bureaucrats have an interest, basically, in promoting it as such. And you talked about this is like in college textbooks, high school textbooks, right, where they, they teach about what a spectacular success the Marshall Plan is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course, I, I, I learned all about the, the Marshall Plan in high school U.S. history and all that. I never learned anything about Ludwig Erhard. You know, <laughs> that was that wasn't until I studied German history later in college. But you know, the state-run uh, public school system and a textbook. All I talk about is the Marshall Plan um, for revitalizing, rebuilding Europe, all of this stuff. Now, how long was Erhard uh, the chancellor for? And once he was out of office, did they? change course on their policies? He was, you know, at the top of my head, I'm not sure the years, and I don't want to tell you wrong. It was through the, he was, yeah, he was chancellor from 1963 to 1966. So they, no, I would say Germany to this day, well, until the crisis in 2008 follows his philosophy, essentially. So that's, that's, uh, it's a big sticking point in EU politics now because Germany, especially now that the UK is gone, basically controls the EU. And even when the UK was here, controlled the Eurozone. And the German Central Bank has always had a very uh, adamant 
hard money policy. So it is a fiat currency, but they maintain incredibly low inflation. And so when there was all the uh, debt default problems with Greece, Spain, uh, Portugal, Germany always resists printing money to monetize the debt of other European countries, which then they complain about. So that's a big problem in, in EU politics. There have been, so during reunification, there was a bit of an issue because the the German government took on a lot more debt than they usually did to try to help reunify and kind of equalize the economies. Uh, and there was a lot of conflict then with the German Central Bank because they didn't they didn't want to print money to kind of fund these programs. Um, and then lately, after the crisis, the German Central Bank has been a little bit looser with their monetary policy. Uh, but as far as laissez-faire stuff, taxes, uh, German taxes are higher now than they were during Earhart's day, but they're not. When they were at 85% Jeez. before Earhart, uh, not before he was chancellor, before he was an economic advisor. So they, so they did all these things essentially overnight, which I think is uh, an important thing to point out because a lot of times these economic policies in inflationary monetary policy, things like that, they're like a drug and, and people get addicted to them. And you, you got to just keep printing money. Uh, it's like going programs. on a Coke binge, right? Yeah, exactly. And there is a painful period if you rip off that Band-Aid. And, you know, you in this case, they slash the money supply by 93%. So when, when all that new money disappears, there's an adapt and a, and a period of, of adapting but it's, it's not very long and it's a lot better than the alternative so uh, the policies that earhart advocated were basically in effect from the 50s uh, up until today but at the very least up until the 2008 crash yeah did germany well west germany and then after unification uh, was it steady prosperity during that point i mean i'm guessing they probably had some recessions but in general did, did they have a prosperous economy yeah germany has had an an incredibly prosperous economy i would say through reunification um not as prosperous as the u.s necessarily and like per capita national income and things like that but what they did have uh and you can compare this with other nations that have a very hard currency is they had very, very low unemployment. So Germany reached a low in the 60s of 0.7% unemployment. So they they actually had to bring in migrant workers from Turkey. Now there's a huge Turkish population in Germany because they simply didn't have enough people for all the jobs. Uh, Switzerland had a similar thing, which of course Switzerland had the gold standard much longer than all other countries. So, and that's an important point because inflationary monetary policy in Keynesian propaganda is supposed to prevent unemployment. You're supposed to solve unemployment by printing money. You print money, you increase aggregate demand, uh, you create new companies that start hiring new people. But when you look at the track record, 
nations that don't inflate their currency, nations that have very hard currency, have lower unemployment. Now, so wasn't the whole uh, idea of the Phillips curve destroyed with the stagflation of the 70s? Yeah, um, but it's... I, I don't understand why today. So with that, so actually Alan Greenspan, of course, from the Chicago School is one of the first people who pointed out that these things about the Marshall Plan, pointed out saying it was Ludwig Erhard who really started the economic miracle of Germany, not the Marshall Plan. Um, but the Chicago School uh, and that kind of neoliberalism, all that stuff, still to this day is it it serves as like uh i feel like in the economics community it's like a oh look there is another idea but in reality government policy especially is still like 90 percent keynesian at least yeah. well I, sure they want power why wouldn't they take the ideas right. they're going to give them power <laughs> that's the nature of, of what government does so are there any figures on the world stage today that are comparable to a, a Ludwig Erhard? On the world stage? Or in the West, at the very least. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in the Middle East or in Japan, but like, like I'm thinking of like a Javier Malay. I think that's how you pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, that's who I, who I was going to say. Um, uh, I've, I think that he represents that sort of thing. Uh, I am really curious to see if a similar kind of effect happens. So I, I've always said that to a lot of people where um, people are kind of afraid, I guess, or libertarians are sort of afraid, like, oh, you know, he'll have this short presidency and he won't fix anything in time and then people will just throw him out. But I, I think if he does the right things, it could be really fast. Well, I think... There have already been some significant improvements in the Argentinian economy. What was it? Like foreign investment has increased a certain amount or something. I don't know if you know any of those numbers. No, <laughs> no, definitely not. There have been one thing is like, one thing I did see is like foreign airlines have increased their routes to Argentina by like a which oh, that's cool. Business, there's more business interest in Argentina. I think with Argentina, one thing that differs, I think, from, from Germany is that Argentina's not, Argentina's a bit under the thumb of other countries. Germany was obvi obviously, it was occupied, but it had been a European power. It has this, uh, Ludwig Erhard was coming from a tradition of running a nation on a global stage, not running a nation that uh, has sort of been pulled between the US and China for the past decade or so. I got to tell you, the the W making the V sound in, in German drives me <laughs> up a wall. Like whether it's Ludwig von Mises or Richard Wagner, it just it, it's maddening. I always forget. You know? <laughs> you know? So 
the German economic miracle, uh, what lessons does it have for the modern world as far so, as what policies, our attitudes toward economics? The number one policy, I think, is hard currency. So Germany is a bit unique in that they maintain the hard currency despite it being a fiat currency. That's that's a hard thing to do. And the reason they were able to do that is because their central bank is incredibly independent. So it's always ranked as the most independent central bank. And um, normally the independence of a central bank is like exactly correlated with how bad inflation is in that nation. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> so I, I mean, me personally, I'm not a fan of central banks in general, but if you're going to have one, it should be independent of the government. If you have a, an entirely government-run central bank, obviously they're just going to do quantitative easing, monetize all their debt, everything. Uh, so, so that's wait, when you just said hard currency. I'm curious. So, do you advocate for a gold standard, like so that we would return to, to either a gold or a silver standard, some sort of? Uh, uh, you know, what's the word? I, I can't even think of the word I'm looking for. But uh, a, a currency that backs, you know, the dollar or whatever else we have. Yeah, I. Well, first and foremost, I advocate for an independent currency. Metals, so I'm thinking. Precious metals. Yeah, a currency that's not under the control of the government. So at, at the end of the day, that could be anything. Gold, of course, is has historically been the best thing for that because uh, even silver, if you look at the Spanish Empire, for example, they found all these silver mines in the Americas and they wiped, the Spanish crown wiped out the wealth, especially of Spain, but of nearly all of Europe, just by importing tons of silver uh, into Europe from the Americas. So silver, because it's relatively easy to mine compared to gold, still doesn't even fill that role quite as well. So history has just proven that gold has served the best role, but gold is still not necessarily perfect. The main problem with gold is that it's really heavy. <laughs> so if, you, if you're talking about in a globalized economy with, you know, major companies, major banks, whatever, if they if they need to settle accounts and they have to ship 100 tons of gold across the ocean, that's a major undertaking. Yeah, I really can't picture like my girlfriend walking around with her purse full of, <laughs> full of gold bars, but I, I am a gold standard guy. You know? yeah. All right. So I is there anything that we didn't cover that you think we should have or anything else that needs to be said on the topic? Um, I, th I think it's one thing we didn't dive a ton into were then of course his other policies, I would say, which were the price controls uh, and taxes. Okay. So price well, controls. This was a big thing. Dive the in. US, yeah. So the U S government agreed to the currency uh, and doing that in secret overnight. But he came in uh, and he said, we need to get rid of all the price controls too. And the US government was very against this. So I think this is something that most Americans today would, would find a little bit strange that you had this European economist coming in to tell an American official we need to remove price controls. Uh, and it was the American government that was very against it. Um, but that's what happened. But in, in the end, he convinced them. And so this was all 
basically overnight. They removed all the price controls uh, and they dropped taxes. Like I said, the average urban citizen went from 85% to 18%. So this increased, nice. yeah. Uh, so the real stimuli that caused the German economic miracle were increased investment because now people, instead of only having 15% of their income, they have 82% of their income. Uh, they can buy what they need to get by to survive and then they can save and invest the rest. So that's a lot better than just having the U.S. send you things, send you money and then buy them from American producers. I think that when you when you spell it out, it seems really obvious. Like obviously, it's going to be better for an economy, for their people to have their money, to be rebuilding capital, to be reinvesting in infrastructure and things like that, instead of just giving them credit to buy things from American factories. Like, yet there's still this pervasive idea that the Marshall Plan rebuilt everything. So it seems if you want to grow an economy, you have sound money, low taxes, little regulation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sounds sounds good to me. Wow. Okay. Well, we've reached the end. <laughs> you know, I've got this COVID brain fog going on. <laughs> it makes it very difficult to navigate an interview. Okay. Well, uh, Christian, where can people find you? Okay. So I I have my own website, with it, which is christianmonson.com. Uh, I'm also starting an independent press, which uh, I really want to publish a lot of authors uh, in libertarian futurism, which is sort of a niche uh, sci-fi genre. Max Borders type stuff. Yeah, yeah. So uh, if you want to check that out, especially if anybody listening is a writer uh, and they have something they'd like to send me, they maybe want to publish with my press, that is Gelbus Aland dot com. Um, uh, let's see where else I write for the Foundation for Economic Education, the Mises Institute. So check those out. You might see me occasionally on there. All right. Well, thank you very much for being with us today and explaining this me. topic. For now, this is the brain fogged rational egoist Michael Ebowitz signing out. Till next yeah. time. Thanks for thank being you. with us. <laughs>